Two things before I get into this. Number one, uh, Rebecca Powers. She got engaged this past week. So congratulations. And uh, mom and dad will pray for you too, right? So, um, and then um, most of you follow the Novation Facebook page. And on the Facebook page, there is a whole thing of pictures and a blurb about this space. And many of you know we've been trying to find a, a sublease to be a blessing into the community and to bring some resources into the church. So if you see that, would you share that on your social media platforms? And we'll see if we can't get the right fit in here for uh, a sublease for our space. We don't want to see this um, not be used, you know, most of the time. We want to see it flourishing. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for hope. Thank you for you, Father. Thank you for your heart for us. Grow our faith this morning. Grow our hope. Help our roots to go deeper into what we believe, Lord, to live it out. And Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing, but I can do what you've called me to do through Jesus. And so I pray in his name, amen. So yes, talking about James, we've been in a summer series called Whosoever Believes. We're going from Romans to Revelation, the letters of the New Testament. And the letters of the New Testament were written to encourage the church. And, you know, we get to look back on these letters and glean from ancient wisdom from how the early apostles did ministry and what it meant to follow Jesus today. And so as we study the letters, we've been trying to just bring out the, uh, just the deep meaning, like the crescendo passages, so to speak, of each one of these letters. These letters were written like one-on-one, -on -one, like Paul wrote personally to Timothy and to Titus. And then the other apostles also wrote letters to the churches. And so we're going to finish at the end of, of August, and then um, we'll start a new series. But I've really enjoyed this. So... James. Who is James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus, as well as Jude, a guy named Simon, and then Jesus had sisters as well. James, the letter that we're going to talk about today, he's not the same James that was one of the 12 that, that Jesus picked to be his disciples for the three-year ministry. That James was the first of the 12 to be martyred uh, for following Jesus. We see that in the book of Acts. Jesus, we see in the Gospels, was in Nazareth. He was from Nazareth, born, uh, not born, but raised in Nazareth. And um, one of the verses in there, as Jesus was doing his ministry and beginning to do miracles, it says in Mark 6, 3, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph and Jude and Simon. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. His own family refused to believe in Jesus. And then in John 7, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. So here's Jesus, the Messiah. People are beginning to follow him, but his own family rejected him. And then at the beginning of James' letter, he starts out, he introduces himself, and he says, James, a bondservant of God 
and then of the Lord Jesus Christ. So somewhere in this refusal to believe in his brother as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, he had a conversion experience. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's laying out the gospel and the resurrection and who Jesus appeared to. And it says that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Put yourself in the shoes of James. You're not the Messiah. You're not the one Israel's awaiting. I refuse this. You're just our, our, our carpenter's son. <laughs> You're just one of us. But then Jesus dies and rises from the grave, and he appears to his brother. Like, Can you imagine what would have happened to his heart as he saw the risen Jesus? Then we see in the book of Acts two accounts of James. One was he was in the upper room <clears throat> with the rest of the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 15, James obviously had become a major leader in the early church, decision-making in the Jerusalem council and a lot that was going on. James is the earliest letter in the New Testament. It was written about 45 AD. And the heart of this letter is about authentic faith. What does authentic faith look like? That authentic faith is going to produce action. That you move from just being a believer to a doer and a follower of Jesus. We do what he says to do. We're saved by faith alone. But when that faith is genuine and authentic, it's going to be a faith that's never alone. It will produce good works. It will produce good deeds. We become doers of the word. So I took James, there's five chapters in James, and I'm going to summarize through what he has to say, the book of James, in four statements. The first one is this. Authentic faith perseveres and matures through trials and tests. As we were praying earlier, many of you are going through a trial right now. There's a test that's going on. And the goal of those tests and trials is to produce authentic faith and a mature faith. Now remember, when you're reading these letters of the New Testament, it's important to know who the audience was. James says he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That was code for the church that's scattered, that's being persecuted by Rome and by many of the religious leaders. And so the, the early church were, were totally persecuted for doing what we're doing today, for, for calling on King Jesus and talking about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Rome or Nero or some emperor. So they were feeling this persecution. And out of the gates, he says, "'Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters,' When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, he's not saying consider it joy the actual trial you're going through. You have a cancer diagnosis, relational issues, financial issues. He's not saying consider that the joy, but consider as you persevere through these trials and tests 
that your faith is going to be authenticated. Your faith is going to be mature. Many people go to the gym, right? And you go and you exercise and you, you, you put in the discipline. You're looking for results. If you go do all the sweat and all the work to, to get your body healthy or stronger and you don't get any results, I'm not doing that, are you? Like nobody wants to do that. But the reality is tests and trials are the gym, so to speak, spiritually that Christ uses to make us strong, to make our faith, our roots go deeper. Tests and trials grow our faith. Testing is a theme throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve were tested. Noah was tested. Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus went through a time of testing in the wilderness. And how many are grateful he passed that test? He passed it for us. He did what we could never do for ourselves. But James uses three words in chapter 1. He uses trials, testing, and temptation. And he says that trials and tests are allowed so that we grow and that we persevere. Temptation, he says, is never from God. He says, when you're being tempted, don't think God is tempting you. God never tempts anyone. Temptation to do evil, to sin, comes from the evil one. He is the tempter. He's the one that always is doing the tempting. God doesn't do that. We have to separate those. But the testing that God allows, um, you know, I don't understand it. None of us probably do in the middle of it. But when you get through it, you realize, wow, I really grew. I'm, my faith matured. When you take a test, a written test, the ACT, SAT, some sort of written test, the teacher is silent, right? The room is silent. Made me think of when I was in high school, I was terrible at math. I just didn't have patience for math, especially algebra. And uh, anybody like algebra? You guys are weird. <laughs> Uh, geometry I could do because there was logic involved to it, but algebra was like, I'm never going to use this. But I was in a, a math class for dummies. Like, I don't know if you ever took any of those, but we were taking the test, and teacher was silent, and she was watching me, and she said, Scott, I just saw you look on his, my person to my left, his test. Give me your test. And I said, if I'm going to cheat, I'm not going to look at this dummy's test. Like, my friend was like, what? What are you talking about? He was actually my friend. But um, sometimes when you're being tested, how many know God seems a million miles away? God, where are you? That was the scripture Christy read. God, where are you? He's silent. But though God is silent in the middle of a testing, does not mean he's not active or that he doesn't care. He is active even when he doesn't speak, even when it seems like he's a million miles away. So hold on to that. Second thing is this. Authentic faith produces acts of love. It produces acts of love. It's going to produce good deeds. James is all about, um, yeah, you say you have faith, but show me your faith by how you live your life. Show me your faith by your works. He says this. Pure and undefiled religion, the Greek, this, you know, all our English translations are translated from Greek into English. The Greek word for religion can also be translated worship. So pure and undefiled worship 
in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And he says this, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, James also goes on to say, he goes, I don't want you to just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Be, don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word. Well, what word is he talking about there? I believe he means the words of Jesus. You go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus lays out the blueprint of the kingdom of God. He lays out what someone who follows Jesus' life should emulate. He lays, it, lays that out, and I think that's what James has in mind. Obviously, the word is the Bible and the rest of the New Testament, but I think he has Jesus' words about love your enemies, love those who persecute you, pray for those, do good to others, do good things for people, for others. I think James has that in mind in being a doer. Now, doing doesn't save us. It authenticates that we've actually trusted Jesus and that we're his follower. I forgot to bring it in, but inside most of the glove compartments of our cars is a car manual, right? And if I took our car manual to, to our car and I, I read it, I even highlighted it, I, I memorized it. Me and Brian and Jill have a, a little study together over my car manual and he educates me in, in, in my car and all of that. If I never put the key in the car and drive it, that'd be pretty foolish to memorize that, that car manual. What was the point? I think the same thing is true about reading scripture and reading the words of Jesus and not doing what he says to do. He says, why do you, call, Jesus actually said this, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And that, you know, is, is the whole point, I think, of what James is trying to say here. Somebody once said, the only parts of the Bible I believe are the ones I put into practice. And I think that's true. Two things of concerning acts of love that James makes apparent is to care for the least of these. Remember Jesus said, what you've done for the least of these, you've done to me. And I'm always asking folks in our church, and I'll ask you today, you don't have to shout it out, but think about this. Who are the least of these in your life? Who are the least of these in our community? Who are the least of these at your school, if you're still in school? There are people that are bullied and picked on and have no friends. Are you befriending them? Are you protecting them? They're at the workplace, in the community. Who are the least of these? Jesus wants us to take care of them. And then James makes a big emphasis, too, on don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism to somebody who has money or success or power and give them a better seat in the congregation than somebody who doesn't have as much. We're all equal in Christ regardless of how much money or status or power that we have. But authentic faith is going to produce acts of love. And then thirdly, authentic faith produces self-control and wisdom. Self-control and wisdom. And what James really emphasizes in the area of self-control is controlling your speech, controlling 
your tongue, taming the tongue, many translations say. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of our words. What we say has death and life. And it's important, man, that he says that the, the tongue is like a spark that can light a whole forest on fire. I don't know if any of you remember this or not, but last July, I was on a walk, and, and the Diebels, Joel and Kristen and their family live in the same neighborhood. And I was on the phone with our oldest, Chase. She was then just pregnant with Jolene, like bursting at the seams pregnant. And um, we were talking, and all of a sudden, I smelled smoke. And I was like, huh. All of a sudden, I looked, and there's smoke coming from behind the Diebel's house, like lots of smoke. And I said, Chase, I got to go. And I went to the Diebel's house, and I just opened the door. I didn't even ring the door, and I walked in. And Joel had just got home from a work trip, and he was talking with Audrey. And I said, guys, look out to the backyard. Like, there's a flames and fire going on. They were like, whoa. And Joel and I went out with uh, their hoses and their, with the help of the neighbor. It was weird because there was a patch about 50 by 50 of fire right behind their house. But the fire had missed maybe 10 yards, but then started again. And that fire was headed west. And it was like flashbacks from, you know, what could have happened, like what happened in, in uh, Superior couple of years ago. And so we're out there and we finally got that little patch behind their house completely out. Yes, we were heroes. We never made the news or anything, but um, my father-in-law gave me, he was a, he's a retired fireman and he gave me a little sticker that says junior fireman. <laughs> I appreciated that. But when they investigated on how the fire started, Right behind, so you have the Diebel's yard, their fence, there's a path, and then there's train tracks, and then there's the space, the, the open space. They said that the tr a train went by and sparked, and that little spark started the fire. And I thought, that's what James is talking about. One little misused word can crush somebody's soul. We've all been there, right? He says... I like the message version of this. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it, smoke right from the pit of hell. Words are powerful. You can hear 10 positives about you, and someone says one thing negative, and it just seems to... Those, those 10 positive things just disappear, right? We, are, we focus on the negative more than we do the positive. It's hard for us. It's the way we're kind of wired. William Paul Young is an author and theologian. He wrote The Shack, and I was listening to a podcast that he was on. And he talked about growing up in, in his home that his dad was very stoic and old school and a hard, hard disciplinarian. And that he never heard from his dad, I love you. I'm proud of you. You got what it takes. The message that a father must send to his son and daughter. He never heard that. And so he always had this void in his life. Maybe you can relate to this. Um, and he said that by the time Paul Young was a, a dad and a grandpa himself, his dad out of the blue called him. And he said... He said, son, I want to let you know that I love you and I'm really proud of you. 
after all these years, not hearing that message, he finally heard it. And he said it sent him on a journey of healing from that dad wound that he had carried around all of his life. Words are powerful, but they're not equally powerful. It depends on who says the words. If, the, if a person whom you truly care about how they see you, think about you, and they say something negative to you, it hurts. It's going to hurt worse. I've heard many people say that um, they wish they had heard their dad say things like, I love you and I'm proud of you, and it's still a void as an adult. I got good news for you. Jesus is God's word to you. He is God the Father's word to us. And his word is, I love you so much, I gave you my son. I love you so much, I gave you my very best. Because that's how treasured you are. Jesus is God's word to you and I. I heard somebody one time say, when it comes to our speech, only say words that are kind, true, and necessary. Kind, true, and necessary. So if you're having trouble taming your tongue like me, um, I'm, I'm in that camp. I struggle with not just blurting out things, especially when you're driving, right? That's, that's the worst. But um, I remember um, a story, not a story, but a movie called The Cowboys. It was an old John Wayne movie. Anybody remember that, that movie? John? Two of us, cool. Uh, it was a great movie. John Wayne recruits, his character recruits uh, a bunch of young boys to help him move cattle from state to state or something. And it's, it's a good movie. and got some twists and turns. But in the movie, there was a, a horse that couldn't be broken. And I think its name was Betsy or something like that. And this horse, somebody would get on it and would just kick and buck and boom, that somebody would go flying trying to tame this horse. No one could do it. But one of the young boys was a, a Native American, and he, he had this technique of breaking horses that they didn't know about. He took the horse into a river where the river made the horse about shoulder deep into the water. And then he got on the horse, and the horse was unable to kick and buck and ultimately got broken and tamed. And I thought, what a cool illustration for us that James says no one can tame the tongue, but, but yet the Holy Spirit can tame our tongues. The Holy Spirit can help us to speak words that are only kind, true, and necessary. And so for all of us to take ourselves and immerse in the person of the Holy Spirit and say, hey, would you help me watch what I say? Would you convict me when I'm about to say something that's, that's in anger or whatever, because some people actually have a filter. Like you get something that angers you, and you have a filter, and you can think about it for a second, and you maybe don't say the thing that you, you're not supposed to say. Well, some of us are like this, and that would be me. The, the filter, I'm, I'm asking God, would you give me, just open that a little bit, so instead of just blurting out something that frustrates me, that I would be able to have a, a, a window there. Say, no, I'm not going to say that. You with me? So authentic faith produces self-control and wisdom by controlling our speech, but also wisdom in our relationships. Wisdom in our relationships. 
It takes godly wisdom to get along with others. Married people, you know what I'm talking about. It takes wisdom to get along with your spouse. We need heavenly wisdom. Not earthly wisdom, but we need God's wisdom on how to get along with others. James says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not the, that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is or, disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't know if you were here a couple weeks ago, but I talked about Paul's letter to Philemon and how Paul was a true peacemaker in this trouble that was going on between Philemon and Onesimus. And Paul was a, a peacemaker. And I said, you can be a peacemaker, a peacetaker, or a peace faker. And Jesus wants us to be peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. But sometimes we're peacetakers, and we don't, have, we don't exercise the godly wisdom in our relationships. Or maybe we're peace fakers where we just don't have the courage to, to try to make peace. We're afraid of what would happen if we're vulnerable. It made me think of when I was 20 years old, I was a parts runner for a transmission shop. And in the back of the shop where they kept all the parts and cars, they had a, a guard dog, and it was a chow. And if you love chows, don't send me any emails. I'm just telling the truth here. But <laughs> I get in trouble when I talk about dogs sometimes, but um, especially Mark's. But this dog was a chow, and, and so I remember like when I would, there was a fence here, and the dog would look at me. When I was looking it in the eye, it was kind of docile, didn't really act up much. But as soon as I would turn away, I would hear him, you know, as soon as you turn your back on a chow, that's, that's their defense mode. And I thought, that dog is a piece faker, and he's going to take the piece as soon as you turn your back on that dog. He's not a peacemaker like Mark's dogs. There you go. And then lastly, authentic faith produces patience. How many are gifted with patience? Like it's just your strong suit. Good for you. No one raised their hand. All of us are impatient. No one, I've never met anybody that goes, man, patience is just my strong suit, man. It's easy. But you see it in, in little babies, and as they grow, they're impatient. Toddlers, on and on and on. We, and then as adults, we're just acting out like when a baby wants to food, they cry. When they're uncomfortable, they cry. They're impatient about their, that has to be learned. But as I was thinking about this, God is patient, right? Love is patient. And patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's, it's produced by the Holy Spirit. Pastor Russ phrase. One of my heroes, one of my spiritual fathers, um, I affectionately call him the dean because he was the dean of the Bible school that I, I went to. 
uh, early in my Christian life, and he was a guy that I just looked up to. He was a guy you could emulate, follow him as he follow, follows Christ. And uh, I remember one time, though, I was, I was driving in a car with him, and he got so impatient in traffic, and he, he actually blurted it out. And I was like, hey, he's actually, you know, like me. And he, he's even impatient. I thought, okay, so I'm in, I'm in good company. Then I was reminded when I first was, my first year of Bible school, I was pretty much a brand new Christian. And uh, I had this dream. Because listen, I, I elevated him, you know, on a high platform. And I had this dream one night that he was driving and I was sitting shotgun. And we were driving in an old Cadillac convertible with the top down. And he's driving and he's just telling me about the glory of God and the goodness of God and truths about God. And then somebody cut him off in traffic. And he goes, you blankety blank, 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 blank. And I was just like, what in my dream? And then all of a sudden he turns to me and he's like, in the glory of God and blah, 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 blah. And I woke up and I was like, God, what was that all about? And I felt like the Lord said, he's a sinner saved by grace just like you. And it helped me. I still could emulate him, but the platform never put a human being on a platform because they're not Jesus. We're all works in progress. Everybody is. Somebody at some point is going to let you down in some way. But authentic faith produces patience. And James talks about two areas of practicing patience. First is patience in enduring life's difficulties. How easy is that? (laughs) Remember, the audience that he's writing to is undergoing persecution and difficulty. He says, therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient in life's difficulties. That's not easy to do, especially when you're in pain. When somebody has physical pain, that's, that's kind of the, one of those backbreakers for pe- people, so to speak, the difficulties. And then he says, be patient in prayer. Be patient in prayer. There's a long passage, but it's powerful. Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person when it, has, when it is brought about can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. <clears throat> question for you. What have you been praying for that you have not got an answer 
for yet. You're still waiting. You're having to be patient. Prayer is always going to be answered with a yes, a no, or a not yet. And the yes, we appreciate, right? Yeah, yeah, God, thanks for answering my prayer with a yes. When we get a no, it hurts, but at least we're not in limbo anymore. It's that time of, of waiting, that the not yet. Maybe you're in a not yet answer to your prayer just yet. I want you to remember this. Prayer is bringing your needs and the needs of others before God, but it's so much more than just, you know, giving a list to God. It is relationship. It is a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Prayer is about immersing yourself in the love of our Heavenly Father. And I think, you know, it, when your kids are little or grandkids and they come up into your lap, like if all they say to you is, can I have a Tonka truck and a new this and a new that and a game, and all they tell you is what they want from you rather than just hanging out with you when you want to you hear their hopes and dreams. How was your day? What happened at school? That kind of parental relationship. Nurture that with our Heavenly Father. He wants that for you. We're going to sing a song about the goodness of God. And as we sing, I want to give anyone an opportunity that you want someone to pray with you about something. Um, back in the back of the room over there, we have our little communion area. We take communion corporately the first Sunday of the month together, so next week. But on a weekly basis, communion's back there provided for you so that at the end of service, if you want to go back there and take communion and remember what Jesus did for you and, and, and uh, you know, strengthen your faith, that's going to be there on a weekly basis. So if you want to go back during the song and take communion or have someone agree with you in prayer, there's going to be some folks back there. Let's stand and let's sing this song together and declare to our Father how good He really is. Darkest night, 